No, I, I, I think you have food allergies. Oh. 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 Wow. What? Uh, Benadryl? Where's the Benadryl? Aisle two. Which one's aisle two? The one with the big two over. Hi, and welcome back to the Wild EM Podcast, where our goal is bringing you better care out there. Today, we're going to talk about anaphylaxis and why when you have a severe allergic reaction in the wild, you should not be running for a lot of Benadryl in aisle number two. So first off, let's be clear on terminology. We are going to talk about treatment of anaphylaxis, a condition that can rapidly become life-threatening. Definition. We're going to keep it simple here in defining anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis is a systemic reaction triggered by an allergen that either involves the airway, breathing, or circulation, or involves two separate organ systems. There you go. So what do I mean by that? Well, the first part of that phrase builds on what we already know to assess, the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, meaning that if you have a patient with a suspected exposure to an allergen and a swollen tongue or throat tightening, it's anaphylaxis. There's an airway issue. Or again, if you have a patient with difficulty breathing or signs of respiratory distress, again, it's anaphylaxis. Or finally, if you have a patient with cardiovascular collapse, signs of shock, again, by now you know it, it's anaphylaxis. The second part of our definition, referring to two separate organ systems, means that if you have someone with urticaria and vomiting, or urticaria and mild shortness of breath, for example, then you are also in the presence of anaphylaxis. This is separate from an isolated skin rash, which is not anaphylaxis and not a life-threatening condition, but rather that would be a mild allergic reaction. Defining anaphylaxis is important because we have to be able to recognize it, to identify it, and then be able to treat it. Which brings us to management. So once we've identified anaphylaxis, as always, start by your primary survey. And by that, I mean address the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. After that, the next priority should be to remove the offending agent if feasible. So if you're in the presence of a reaction from a cutaneous source, you should remove it. Or if it's from a suspected ingestion and the patient is able to brush his teeth or rinse his mouth, then I would encourage him to do so as well to try and remove more of that potential allergen. Now, what about pharmacological treatment? First of all, don't run for the Benadryl or diphenhydramine in aisle number two. The only, and I repeat, the only intervention that has shown a mortality benefit in anaphylaxis is epinephrine. So it is very important to give it early and get the dosing and the route of administration right. Epinephrine. First of all, the dose. For kids, the dose is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram intramuscular injection. So any human being weighing at least 50 kilograms should get a first dose of 0.5 milligrams IM or intramuscular. Note that 0.5 milligrams intramuscular is also the maximum initial intramuscular dose regardless of the patient's weight. So to repeat what has already been said, the maximum dose for any adult or their maximum initial dose will be 0.5 milligrams of epinephrine intramuscular. Epinephrine should be administered intramuscular and not subcutaneous. Studies have now shown that the peak epinephrine dose is obtained about 8 minutes after IM injection compared to a whopping 34 minutes after subcutaneous injection. 
And if you're hanging around with a sick anaphylaxis patient in the wild, the last thing you do is to be waiting those extra 34 minutes for that epinephrine dose to kick in. One last point to discuss is the location of injection. Here, you want to inject the intramuscular epi in the patient's thigh. Though the deltoid or shoulder muscle is much more accessible, injection in the thigh delivers a higher effective dose of medication. This was studied by Simons and all in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. The results of this study show that an IM injection of epinephrine in the thigh compared to the shoulder resulted in plasma concentrations of epi up to five times higher. So how should we carry epi in the wilderness? If you're comfortable drawing up medication and doing intramuscular injections, having ampules of epinephrine will let you bring more doses and save space. If you are not used to these manipulations, I would recommend using a commercial injection device, which are often much easier to use in an emergency setting. It is worth knowing that certain commercial devices, such as the EpiPen, have additional doses that can be extracted from the device in the event that repeat doses are required and no other EpiPens are available. So there you have it. Treatment of anaphylaxis is epinephrine. Get the dosing right and aim for the thigh. And that's it for this week on the Wild EM Podcast. Well, okay, we can talk about the other medications as well, but really, if you only want to take one thing away from today's podcast, it's that epinephrine is the only treatment that will save your patient's life in anaphylaxis. Antihistamines. Although diphenhydramine, or Benadryl, is often the first medication that comes to mind, ranitidine or Zantac can also be used in conjunction for treatment of the itchiness, or pruritus, and skin rash caused by an allergic reaction. But that is all you can hope these antihistamines will do for you. Treat the skin rash. And though unpleasant, no deaths have ever been reported from an allergic skin rash. This is further echoed by the Australian guidelines that even go as far as advising against use of antihistamines for the majority of anaphylaxis cases, as they can cause somnolence. And then after that, you're kind of stuck between wondering if the patient has become somnolent because of a progressing anaphylactic reaction and cardiovascular collapse, or if it's a side effect of the medication, which often leaves you with more questions than answers. In the wilderness setting, an additional risk of these sedating medications is to hinder the ability of the patient or team to mobilize or self-extract depending on what the definitive treatment plan will be for your patient. So, what does the literature tell us? A Cochrane review attempted to identify any randomized controlled trials looking at the benefits versus the harms of antihistaminergic medications compared to placebo for anaphylaxis and found none. In my mind, not a lot of arguments in favor of a drug that offers no benefit for mortality and will make your patients sleepy. Now, this side effect can be avoided by using second-generation antihistamine medications such as cetirizine or reacting. But again, the main takeaway is that these drugs don't save lives. Now, full disclosure. In 2017, an article called Antihistamines Reduce Progression to Anaphylaxis was published in the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. As the title suggests, this study found that 2% of patients treated with antihistamines progressed to anaphylaxis compared to 3.5% who did not receive these drugs. The big issue with this study is that it was not a randomized control study, and that the group of patients who received antihistamines also received more epinephrine. In fact, 8% got epinephrine compared to 3% in the control group. So if you ask me, the difference or the reason the difference of outcome is that more people got epinephrine and thus less progressed to anaphylaxis, and it had nothing to do with the administration of antihistaminic drugs. Moving on. Corticosteroids. 
The most important thing to understand about corticosteroids is, regardless of if you think they have an effect or not in treating anaphylaxis, they take four to six hours to become effective, to start seeing their effect. So this is obviously not an immediate life-saving intervention. And even after that elapsed time, no studies have shown any definitive benefit towards mortality. Again, corticosteroids for anaphylaxis does not save lives. So why give them? After an initial allergic reaction, between 2-5% to of patients will go on to have a secondary reaction, or what is often called a biphasic reaction. So, do steroids prevent this from happening? The short answer is probably not, but we don't know for sure. First, we need to understand that the biphasic reaction is rare. In 2014, Rahasek and al. published an article looking at 1,300 patients who presented with an allergic reaction. 25, or about 5%, had a biphasic reaction. Among these 25 patients, 5 needed to be treated with epinephrine for their secondary reaction. So, in all, out of the initial 1,300 patients, 5 had a biphasic reaction that needed to be treated with epinephrine. In 2015, Grunow and al. published an article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine where they looked at 2,700 patients who presented to the ED with an allergic reaction. Of these, about half were treated with steroids. Regardless of if you were treated with steroids or not, in both groups, about 6% of patients returned to the ED in the following week for an allergic reaction type symptoms, or a biphasic reaction, so no difference between the groups if you were treated with steroids or not. Now, it must be said that as previously mentioned, biphasic reactions are a rare occurrence. Next, to show a decrease in a rare occurrence, such as a biphasic reaction, would require an immense study with many, many more patients to say with certainty that steroids have no effect in preventing these reactions, and such a study may never be done and has not been done to my knowledge. So, what are we left with here? Some people will say that steroids have classically been used to treat anaphylaxis and that the absence of proof to suggest that they are useful is not the same of proof of absence of any benefit, and for that reason we should continue to use them. I, on the other hand, feel that most patients will not need steroids as they will not have a biphasic reaction. And among those that do, if there is any benefit, and that's a big if, it is minimal at best. One exception to that for myself is patients who have associated wheezing which signals inflammation in the lower airway, I believe that these patients could benefit from steroids, though again, there is no definitive data to support this claim. Inhaled beta agonist. A subset of patients with anaphylaxis will have wheezing and lower airway disease associated with their symptoms. In these patients, there may be a component of asthma causing their symptoms, and therefore I do believe treating them with corticosteroids is beneficial, as it has been shown to be for treatment of asthma. Further, these patients' shortness of breath should be treated with inhaled beta agonists or Ventolin in addition to the previously discussed treatments as this will help open up the inflammation in their lower airway and help them with their breathing. Conclusion. Anaphylaxis is a life-threatening condition that we must recognize and treat in a timely fashion. The only treatment shown to save lives is epinephrine, so know the appropriate dose, which is 0.5 mg IM in anyone over 50 kilos, and give it in the patient's thigh and not their arm. Antihistamine and corticosteroids have not shown definitive benefit for patients, and their use needs to be weighed against potential harms in each patient. Again, an exception to this, for myself is patients in whom you can hear some wheezing, and you should be treating these with Ventolin and steroids, in my opinion. And that's it for our episode today on the Wild EM Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon with some more wilderness medicine. Until next time, remember to keep your crampons in the ice.